Would you turn now in your Bibles to the second chapter of the book of Acts? Uh, Dr. Baird uh, started in the book of Acts and he uh, reminded us of the mission of the church, Acts 1. Verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Dr. Baird reminded us that at the heart of the mission of the church is for us to be those who bear testimony to and witness to what Christ has done. The mission of the church is about not how wonderful we are or how great we might be or how wonderful our pastor is or anything else like that, however true that might be. (laughs) But it is about Jesus and about what He has done, who He is and what He has accomplished and what He is doing now uh, in the world. Dr. Baird reminded us that this mission is... Um, powered along by the work of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. I'm going to sort of continue the theme uh, that Dr. Baird began as we look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, where the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. So here now the reading of God's Word, Acts 2, 1 to 13. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we pray now that you would Again, send your Spirit to enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, to renew our wills, and to persuade and enable us to embrace, either for the first time or anew, the Lord Jesus offered to us in the Gospel. 
No, God, give us a vision of what He is doing and what He will do, even with us. In this place and around the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1989, I was in an automobile accident. Um, the Barneses and the Davises were going to Savannah to have a nice dinner out, but we didn't make it. A car lost control in the westbound lane of I-16, came across the median, and almost hit us head on. The front left of that car collided with the front left of our van and ran all the way down the side of that van, ripping the side of it off. I was sitting behind the driver. When it got to me, it hit the post in the side of the vehicle, pushed it up, pushed my seat up, broke my pelvis in three places, and slammed my head against the window and knocked me out. After five minutes or so, I guess, I don't know how long it was. I don't remember anything about it. And the only thing I'm telling you now is what was told me. I don't recall any of it. I smelled gasoline and opened my eyes and I saw lights flashing. And then someone hovered over me and said, What's your name? Where are you from? I said, I'm Roland Barnes and I'm from Macon. Well, I was living in Statesboro, but you'll never be from here. Not unless you were born here. Who are you? Did I know who I was and what I was doing? Back in the 1970s, when I was in college, there was a lot of turmoil going on um, in our society. And um, some look at it now and say it was a, it was a social revolution that took place as um, a biblical view of ethics was jettisoned and then people tried to scramble to put something in its place and still to this day we're in great confusion as a result of that and people ask the question, who am I? What am I supposed to do on this earth? And great confusion resulted and we're still living with a lot of the fall out of that even to this day. To some extent or another, Dr. Baird was trying to remind us, as the Bible reminds us, and this text reminds us, of what is our identity, who are we as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and what is it that God has called us to do? So I want you to note first with me from this text that If the church is anything, the church is a spiritual body. It is a body of people inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God. It is a spiritual body. And so in this text we see that as these men were gathered together in the upper room, 120 people there, and they are praying as Jesus tells them to pray and wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit from the throne of Jesus on high, was poured out upon those people and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They became a spiritual body. You and I are members of a supernatural spiritual organism. 
I wouldn't want to call us an organization. We are not like a, a civic club of some sort or another that uh, comes together to do um, various works in the community. We are not like a social club gathered around some common theme. If this text proves anything to us, it demonstrates to us that what we ought to be and what we are indeed in truth is a spiritual body. We are the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of men and women. That is what the church is. I believe this is manifestly apparent in this text. Um, Everything about this great event that's recorded for us in the second chapter of Acts demonstrates that when the church came into its present form, something extraordinary was taking place, an exceptional development in the plan of God on the earth was at work. Two things stand out to me about that. First of all, the timing of it. Uh, We are told that this great event took place on the day of Pentecost. That was not by accident. That was orchestrated by God Himself. Uh, The day of Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. The word Pentecost is the Greek uh, word that means 50th. So after Passover, they counted 50 days, and that day that came next was the day of Pentecost. It was one of the great three feasts of Israel. When all the men of Israel were to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booze, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover, and then the Feast of Firstfruits or Pentecost, 50 days after Passover took place. It's not accidental that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon these people on that day. It purposely coincides with the day of Pentecost. Why? Well, at least three reasons. One, new covenant blessings are being inaugurated on that day. Remember, God had promised that in the future, by His prophets He promised, in the future there would be a new covenant that God would make with His people and there would be some distinct uh, developments that would come about as a result of that. Jeremiah 31, verse 33 This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Last night we read at the beginning of our third session. I didn't need that anyhow. You've heard the statement, what, what does it mean when the pastor takes his watch off and puts it on the pulpit? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Ezekiel 36, verse 26, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a spirit within my spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. In some new way, God would take, the Holy Spirit of God would be poured out and would take up residence in the hearts of men, and men would be given new hearts upon which the law of God would be written. Now, a lot can be said about the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. 
It really is this, I think, it is a matter of degree, not kind. The Spirit of God is at work in the Old Testament. He circumcised people's hearts. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us. And the Spirit of God takes up residence in us. And the law of God is written on our hearts. And new covenant blessings that were promised for ages in the past are now coming to fruition on that day, the day of Pentecost. It's like in the Old Testament, God wrote the law on ten, the ten Commandments on two tablets of stone. And now He's writing it on hearts of flesh by the Spirit of God. And these believers, therefore, are not only uh, those who are experiencing the new covenant blessings as they are inaugurated, but also they are the first fruits of a spiritual harvest. That really is the significance of the day of Pentecost. It was 50 days into the spring harvest, and the first fruits of the harvest were brought in uh, to the garners, and they lifted up their voices in praise and celebrated unto God. And these believers on this first day, this day of Pentecost, are the great spiritual harvest of the new covenant in Jesus' blood. The fact that this first harvest of souls is on the day of Pentecost is of great import. And this harvest of over 120 at the very outset turns in then to... 3,000, and then, in addition to that, another 5,000, and then it keeps on going and spreads out of Jerusalem into Samaria and Judea, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth, and this spiritual harvest that started then is still going on. And you've heard testimony about it this weekend, as Jesus is still harvesting souls and placing His Spirit in people, and writing His law on their hearts. New covenant blessings are being inaugurated, spiritual harvest is being reaped, and this is sort of also a reorganization of God's covenant people into a new kind of people. When was the nation of Israel first established as God's covenant people? It was in... Exodus 19, verse 6, where God says, He enters into a covenant with them and says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. When was that? Fifty days after the first Passover. And now, Jesus is inaugurating a new people of God fifty days after the Passover when He offered Himself up a sacrifice to satisfy the demands of God's justice. And the people of God now are being reorganized into a spiritual nation and a royal priesthood. And God's covenant nation is now reformed into what we know now as the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And rather than being restricted for the most part to one people and one tongue and one nation, now it is comprised of people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation on the face of the earth. The day upon which the Spirit of God is poured out upon the church manifestly demonstrates the church is something 
new and spiritual. It is a spiritual body. And so the great ingathering of the nations begins on the day of Pentecost. Look at this list of nations that's here. In Acts chapter 2. There in the city of Jerusalem were people there from all over the world to observe this great outpouring of the Spirit of God. Verses 9 to 11 tell us about Parthians and Medes and Elamites and Mesopotamians and Judeans and Cappadocians and people from Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and Libya and Cyrene and Rome and people from the island of Crete and Arabs All of them there, and verse 11 says, We hear them in our tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God, and the nations are hearing the gospel. A symbolic proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth, right on that first day, on the day of Pentecost. So the fact that this event took place the day of Pentecost should cause us to stand in awe. It should cause us to realize that God has begun His great work of building His kingdom from the peoples of every tribe and nation tongue. And you and I are given the great privilege of being a part of that and participating in that. We are a spiritual body. By the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, And every part of that body is needed to engage in this great mission of this proclamation of the gospel. So a spiritual body has a spiritual mission. A spiritual mission to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to the very ends of the earth. To bring the blessings of Abraham, not just to Israel, but to the nations of the earth. As Jesus was told by the Father, Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And this is our mission. This is your mission. The Lord Jesus Christ working through us by the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing the gospel to the very ends of the earth. Now, spiritual mission, as Dr. Baird reminded us last night, requires spiritual power. Notice in Acts 1, verse 4, uh, they were to wait for what the Father promised. Acts 1, verse 5, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Acts 1, verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall then be my witnesses. The spiritual mission of the church is to proclaim the life-changing gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to men and women all over this world who are in darkness and dead in their trespasses and sins. So if we don't have spiritual power, we're doomed. Can you raise people from the dead? I can. We're speaking to zombies, in a sense. Uh, Before I was a believer... Uh, when I came to know Christ in 1969, the whole year before that, in 1968, my junior year in high school, I had a couple of friends who had, in my opinion, become religious and weird. They talked about Jesus on Wednesday. And uh, I didn't like it. I didn't want them asking me questions about things spiritual in nature. It was not Sunday. Sunday was permissible. I could bear with it. I could put up with it. But it was. this is Wednesday at school. So you ought not to be talking to me about that. And... Um, They seemed strange to me. 
And I didn't hear anything because I was dead spiritually. In the fall of 1969, in my senior year of high school, God's Spirit awakened me and my ears were open and my eyes were open and I began to hear the gospel for the first time and I could not get enough of it. Somebody would say, why don't you read this scripture? I would read it. Why don't you memorize it? I memorize it. Because I was alive spiritually. A spiritual mission needs spiritual power. You and I cannot change people. We cannot raise people from the dead. But the Spirit of God can. And we need power that is more than just our powers of coercion. We cannot somehow persuade people into the kingdom of God by our arguments or by our intellect or win people to Christ at the end of a sword or a gun barrel. Spiritual mission needs spiritual power. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church to give us that spiritual power that changes the hearts of men. It's wonderful to think about it that way. It's, 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 it's liberating. That's why we could send somebody from East Tennessee. That's where you're from, right? Yeah. We could send them to the Czech Republic and have confidence that somebody will know Christ. Not because of his powers of persuasion or because he learned how to speak the Czech language, but because of the power of the Spirit of God opening the hearts of men and drawing them to Christ. Jesus talked about the work of the Spirit like the wind blows wherever it will. You cannot predict where it's going to blow, but you see it when it does blow. One of the most glorious things about the gospel ministry and about the work of the church is to see the Spirit of God opening people's hearts and bringing them to life right before your very eyes. Spiritual mission requires spiritual power. And spiritual mission requires also spiritual gifts. And so God powerfully gifted His church on that day in a very peculiar way. These disciples who were not, by the most part, educated men, as well as those who were with them, those 120 in that upper room, uh, after the Spirit of God fell upon them, suddenly began to speak and proclaim the gospel about the mighty deeds of God. Certainly that includes, includes the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And they were proclaiming it in the languages of those people who were there hearing them. This was not some ecstatic utterance or gibberish. They, people who were Parthians, were hearing... In fact, the word that's used here is dialectos. They were hearing the gospel in their dialect. And they were miraculously speaking languages which they had never studied by the power of the Spirit of God. Now... I think every missionary that exists on the face of the earth wished they had that gift. <laughs> uh, it would have been nice to just stand there and all of a sudden start speaking Czech or start speaking Spanish or whatever. I've, I've studied a number of languages in my life. I, I, I studied French in, uh, in high school and in college to no avail. I can say, Vous êtes un voileur, monsieur. You are a thief. <laughs> that was on the tape. For some reason, that stuck in my mind. I studied Greek for two years. I can monkey around with it. I can't speak it. 
I studied Hebrew for two years. I've not quite forgotten all of it. Just give me a couple more years. And um, then I studied German. It's kind of ambition Deutschbecken. Enough to get in trouble. And then I started learning Spanish. I'm still trying to work on that. But uh, it wasn't like this. Verse 6, each one hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 8, we hear them in our own language to which we were born. Verse 11, we hear them in our own tongue. That was miraculous. And it was unique. It did not prove to be normative for the church. It was distinctive of the apostolic ministry and those to whom they ministered. But it was purposeful. It was a miraculous communication of the gospel that men might hear it in their own language. That's still going on today. And it was a rebuke to unbelieving Israel who uh, would not hear the gospel in Hebrew and now they got people preaching the gospel in every kind of language all around them, and people embracing it. And it was a great hope to all the nations of the earth. Right there on the first day of Pentecost. A foreshadowing of what would go on now for the next 2,000 years. And here we are. A spiritual body in Statesboro, Georgia, thousands of miles away from Jerusalem. And the same Holy Spirit that fell upon those people, if you're a believer here this morning, that same Holy Spirit that fell upon them is dwelling in you. And we carry that gospel on to the ends of the earth. Not in our own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. May God help us as we pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for pouring out Your Spirit upon a bunch of sinners who couldn't figure out how to get to You if they tried. And yet You have opened their hearts and drawn them to Jesus. Thank You for doing that with us. And Father, use us in some small way to do that here and around the world. That we might participate in the ongoing work of Your Kingdom. That we might hear the call of the kingdom and proclaim with power the gospel of salvation in Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen.